Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18. Some of you here today may have a very close family member who's not a believer in Jesus Christ. And you may have shared the gospel with them for many years, but they have not yet trusted in Jesus alone for salvation. And this can be scary at times when it's a family member. There's all the different emotions that go with trying to share the gospel with someone that you're very close to. So you've spent a lot of time praying for them. You've encouraged them. You keep on sharing the gospel with them. And you just hope that one day they will submit their lives to Jesus. It's that desire you have to see a close family member come to faith in Christ. But I want you to think about something for a moment. Jesus himself had unbelieving family members. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus is God in the flesh who performed miracle after miracle, walked on water, raised the dead, preached like there was nobody else who'd ever preached like him, and yet his very own family did not believe in him at that time. Listen to Mark 3, 20-21. This is Jesus. He went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Ever happened to you before? Your family say, you're out of your mind. Maybe behind your back. (laughs) That person's a little crazy. They're a little off. They, they, They believe in Jesus. They're crazy. John chapter 7 verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now we know after the resurrection his brothers did because Jude and James both were leaders in the church and they wrote Jude and James. But at that time, they did not believe in Jesus. Has that ever happened to you? Your your own family members don't believe you. You know, when it comes to sharing the gospel with somebody close, a close family member, There's all those emotions. You you got the dread of the family reunion where maybe there's going to be a prayer time. Or you you think about the the desire that you have to share the gospel with them. You want to see them come to faith in Christ. You, You hope that they come to faith in Christ. You think about their eternal destiny. There's all those emotions that go through your heart and mind when you think about a loved one, especially a close family member that doesn't know Jesus. Now, why do I bring this up? Why do I bring up a close family member who doesn't know Jesus? Well, our our message this morning is going to address that. But context is the key to what's going on in the book of Exodus. Let's just remind you, if you weren't here last week, let me just remind you what happened last week in in our text. The Israelites were attacked by the Amalekites. 
a pagan Gentile nation, and the Lord sovereignly routed or gave the Israelites victory over the Amalekites when Moses raised up his hands in fervent prayer. So in essence, the Amalekites, the descendants of Esau, were a pagan group of Gentiles that rejected God's people and rejected the Lord himself. Gentile pagans, the Amalekites. That's chapter 17. That's how chapter 17 ends. How does chapter 18, where we're going to hang out this morning, how does chapter 18 begin? Well, you have another Gentile pagan, but this time he does not reject the Lord or the Lord's people, but he embraces the God of Israel and gets saved by grace. So last week's message was on prayer and spiritual warfare. Today's message is on evangelism and sharing the gospel with unbelievers, especially those that are close family members. So let's read our text together, Exodus 18. Now, Israel's at the base of Mount Sinai. This is where Moses first received the message from the Lord when the Lord came to him in the burning bush. They're back there again. This is just a few days before the Ten Commandments. And so here we are, chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. That's Mount Sinai. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and all that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now here's the main idea of this text, and it's very simple. You're going to be like, duh, Pastor Sean, this, yeah, I understand that, but here it is. I'm going to give it to you. The Lord uses your declaring of the gospel to bring sinners to faith in Christ alone. The Lord uses your declaring of the gospel to bring sinners to faith in Christ alone. And that's what we see this morning. Moses declares the gospel to Jethro. Jethro comes to faith in the God of 
Israel. So what I want to do this morning is I want to explore three big themes, three big aspects of this passage of Scripture that illustrate for us what this whole business is of sharing our faith, evangelism, how God actually saves sinners, what happens when a person comes to faith in Christ, what does this look like when we share our faith with those that don't believe the gospel. So let's look at the first, okay? The first is Jethro's background is steeped in pagan idolatry. We need to know Jethro's background. Okay, back in chapter 2, verse 16, we're introduced to him as the priest of Midian. Here in chapter 18, verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian. That's his title, the priest of Midian. Now, Moses, who wrote the book of Exodus, wants us to understand who Jethro is. He's the priest of Midian. He's a Midianite. Now, you ask the question, who were the Midianites? Well, the word itself, Midianite, means strife. But if you remember back to Genesis 37, the Midianites were the ones that sold Joseph into slavery and sent him off to Egypt. That's who the Midianites were. The Midianites were not that friendly with the Israelites. So Midianites are pagans. They're Gentiles. They don't believe the God of Israel. But notice who Jethro is. He's the priest of Midian. Maybe even the high priest of the Midianites. You have to ask the question, what did he do as high priest? What was his God? Let me give you my answer. I don't know. I looked all week to try to find out what was, what was Jethro's God? What was the Midianites' God? Nobody really knows. But we do know that he did not believe in the God of Israel. He did not believe in Yahweh, the one true Lord. He's steeped in pagan idolatry. But he's heard of the Lord of Israel. He's observed his son-in-law, Moses. Now, remember, back before Moses went and had the showdown with Pharaoh, he was at the burning bush. And what did God say to Moses at the burning bush at the base of Mount Sinai? In Exodus 3.12, God said to Moses, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, they're back. He's brought the people out out of Egypt, and God told Moses, when you get the people out of Egypt, come back to the same spot where the burning bush was at the base of Mount Sinai, and you will worship the Lord there. So this is a this is an important place, and I think Jethro knew this place. Exodus 4.18, Moses went back to his father-in-law and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. This is when Jethro sends Moses back to Egypt. Now, we don't have details of the conversation between Moses and Jethro at this time. But I am making an assumption here that Moses told Jethro about the burning bush. Why would you keep that to yourself if God spoke to you out of a burning bush? He probably told Jethro about the promise that God made that when he gets the Israelites out of slavery, they'd come back to this very mountain. We don't know the reaction of Jethro either. All we know is that Jethro says, Moses, go back to 
Egypt. What we do know is Jethro's a pretty good guy. He's a good father-in-law. He may not have believed a word Moses said. (laughs) Moses walks off, and who knows what Jethro said. That crazy Israelite, what's he talking about, a burning bush? God speaking out of a burning bush, this does not make any sense. But he's my son-in-law. We'll let him have his little fancy ideas. I'll send him off to Egypt, but I don't believe a word he said. We don't know if that's what Jethro said or not. It's the modern equivalent here of Jethro. Basically, Jethro is a pretty good guy. I mean, he was probably moral. I mean, he was the priest of Midian. He was a religious guy. People probably came to him for advice. He probably gave good advice. He was probably popular. He's moral. He's religious. He's a good father-in-law. He's an all-around good guy. Everybody looks at Jethro and says, he's a good guy. What would be wrong with Jethro? He's moral. He's upright. He's a priest. He's got it all together. He's well-liked. He's a leader. Yet Jethro's dead in his sins and trespasses, and he's got a heart of stone towards God, and he is unsaved. So what's Jethro's deepest need? Jethro needs salvation. Jethro needs what his son-in-law has. Jethro needs a personal relationship with the God of Israel, Yahweh. That's what Jethro needs. He's a pagan priest of Midian. He needs a relationship with the living God, Yahweh. How will Jethro know his need? How will Jethro know about this God unless Moses tells him? Paul says it this way in Romans 10, 13 through 15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Praise the Lord. Power of the gospel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the question. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Question, how will Jethro know he needs the God of Israel unless he hears about his need to embrace the God of Israel unless Moses opens his mouth and tells him? And that's exactly what happens. So the first thing we see in this passage of Scripture is that Jethro is steeped in pagan idolatry. He's the priest of Midian. Here's the second big thing in this passage of Scripture. Moses declares the good news of salvation. Look at verse 8. When they have the reunion, verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Moses told Interesting word in the original Hebrew language. That word told means to preach, to announce, to tell, to declare, to proclaim. Moses is evangelizing, sharing the gospel with his father-in-law. And what does Moses tell him? Well, Moses doesn't give him a full-blown gospel presentation the way we would today on this side of the cross, but Moses does address some things. So there's three key things that Moses addresses when he shares the gospel with Jethro. Here's the first thing that Moses shares with him. In verse 8, Moses addresses the reality of sin. Now, Moses recounts their bondage in Egypt. 
being under harsh taskmasters, how God delivered them from bondage. Now, while Moses doesn't outright say this is an issue related to sin, we know all throughout the rest of the scriptures that being in bondage in Egypt is a metaphor, it's a spiritual analogy to us being spiritually in bondage to sin. The Bible teaches that every single person that's born is born separated from God, in bondage to sin. We are under the tyrannical rule, not of Pharaoh, but of sin and the devil. As was read earlier, listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This describes every single person's condition before salvation. If you're saved this morning, this is who you were. If you don't have a relationship with Christ this morning, this is who you are. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let me make this very practical for you this morning. When it comes to sharing the gospel with people that don't know Jesus, do you address this reality of them being in bondage to sin? Do you address the reality of sin? Do you talk to them about their need for a Savior, that they are desperately in a spiritual condition that they can't free themselves? They're in bondage to sin. They're in bondage to Satan. They've been in lifelong spiritual slavery. The writer of Hebrews talks about what Jesus came to do when he destroyed the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death, Jesus' death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here's the point. Unbelievers don't know they're in lifelong slavery. Unbelievers don't know they're in bondage to sin. Unbelievers don't know they're dead in trespasses. Unbelievers don't know they're under condemnation. You need to tell them that. You need to let them know their dire situation. And why? Why do non-believers don't think that? Most people fundamentally think they're pretty good. When you compare your morality to somebody else that's far worse than you, you always look better. And most people think, I'm pretty good. The situation's not that dire. I may do some bad things here and there. But they don't understand that they are spiritually dead and under God's condemnation and separated from the living God. They need to know that. They need to know that they need to be rescued from the domain of darkness. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When you share the gospel with unbelievers, they need to know that they are hopeless, they are helpless, and they are hellbound, and they need released. They need a healthy dose of their condition. They need to know what they need to be saved out of. Because that's what Moses does here. But second, Moses acknowledges the reality of suffering. 
Notice what else he says in verse 8. Moses told or preached or declared to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way. All the hardships. Now Moses doesn't sugarcoat their experience after they left the Red Sea. They had hard times, didn't they? After they came out of the Red Sea, what did they face? Bitter water at the rock? No food in the desert? The Amalekites coming from behind? No water the second time? It wasn't like, hey, they got out of the Red Sea and things were smooth sailing. They got immediately to the promised land. No, it was was suffering after suffering, trial after trial. And that's the reality of the Christian life. Acts 14.22 says this, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Here's the reality of the Christian life that people need to know up front. Don't want to hide this from people, okay? You don't want to hide this from people. Here's what people need to know. And this is from the words of Jesus himself. In Luke 9, 23 through 25, listen to what Jesus says, and this should be what we should tell people too. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Here's the problem in modern day evangelism. We so often minimize the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. We don't talk about what it's going to cost you if you do trust in Jesus. You've got to give up your life. You've got to die to self. You've got to repent and believe. But what do you hear today in today's evangelism? Just try out Jesus, and if you try him out and like him, he'll give you a better life. Just accept him into your heart, and he'll give you that breakthrough miracle that, he, that you're owed. Just accept Jesus into your heart and your life will be blessed. That's a half-truth, right? If you trust Jesus for salvation, will your life be blessed? Absolutely. You will experience the blessing of forgiveness of sins. You will experience the blessing of peace with God, the blessing of eternal life, the blessing of having the joy of the Lord as your strength. There's a bunch of spiritual blessings that happen when you get saved. But let me just tell you this. When you get saved, things may get harder for you. You may lose friends. You may now seriously struggle with sin that you didn't even care about before. The devil's going to attack you now. Things may get harder. You know, I was listening to a podcast this morning, and they made a statement from Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer said, People don't need to know that Christianity is helpful until they first know that Christianity is true. They need to know Christianity is true before it's helpful. Oftentimes, what we present Christianity is, is this is going to help improve your life. It's going to make your life better. And we need to warn unbelievers of the cost. And Moses says, listen, Jethro, we had a a tough time. God saved us. He got us to the Red Sea, but man, we had trial after trial after trial. That's the reality of the Christian life. You're going to experience trials. But here's the third thing Moses does. Moses announces the reality of salvation. 
There's a word that's repeated all throughout this text. I don't know if you counted it up. Delivered. It's the word delivered. Look at it. It's, it's all, all through this. Verse 8. Then Moses told his father all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them, and how the Lord had delivered them. Literally, how the Lord had saved them. Not once does Moses draw attention to himself. You know, Moses could have said, you know what, Jethro? God used me in a mighty way. I mean, I had the staff. It was awesome. I got to hold it up. Not once does Moses draw attention to himself. He says, listen, I'm going to tell you all that God has done. Could Israel get themselves out of slavery? No. Could Israel provide themselves sweet water at the bitter waters of Marah? No. Could Israel provide themselves manna and quail every day? No. Could Israel provide water coming gushing out of the rock? No. Could Israel even defeat the Amalekites? No. The answer is no. I wonder how often when we share our personal testimonies, we talk a lot about ourselves, but we never get around to talking about Jesus. I'm not downplaying you sharing your personal testimony, but if all you talk about is you, 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 and I got to do this, and this, 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 and me, 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 and you never get to the actual gospel, the gospel's not your testimony. The gospel's about Jesus and what Jesus has done. And Moses tells Jethro, listen to all that the Lord has done. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We don't preach ourselves, Paul says. We're not talking about ourselves. We're not, we're not um, lifting up ourselves. We're not elevating ourselves. We're going to talk about Jesus. So in your evangelism, yes, it's appropriate to share your personal testimony, but you've got to get to Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. If you're going to talk about something, don't talk about yourself. Talk about Jesus and the cross. Okay, so what have we seen so far? The two big ticket items we've seen in this passage of Scripture. Number one, we've seen Jethro's background. He's steeped in pagan idolatry. He's a Gentile Midianite. He's a priest of Midian. Number two, Moses declares the gospel to him. Moses starts back in chapter 4, verse 17, and goes all the way up to where they are now. So what does Moses do? Moses starts when he meets Aaron. They go back. There's the showdown with Pharaoh. There's the ten plagues. There's Passover. There's the angel of death. There's the crossing of the Red Sea. There's the plundering of the Egyptians. There's the bitter water turning to sweet water. There's the manna and the quail. There's the water gushing out of the rock. There's the defeating of the Amalekites. And that's where we are in the story. And Moses says, Jethro, listen to all that God has done. I'm going to share with you the gospel. Okay, here's the third thing we see in this passage of scripture. Third, Jethro embraces the true God of Israel as his Savior. Verses 9 through 12 show us Jethro's response to when Moses shares the gospel with him. And I'm excited about this passage of Scripture because it gives us some insight into what really happens when a, when a lost person gets saved, what, 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 what goes on in their heart and their mind and their expression. So we see five things here in Jethro, and they're in each verse, verses 9 through 12. So what do we see happen in Jethro's life? Well, first of all, in verse 9, Jethro expresses a joy in understanding his salvation. Notice what it says in verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced 
for all the good that the Lord had done to the Israel had done to Israel in the hand, in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro rejoiced. Now what had Moses just told him? Jethro, I'm going to tell you about the 10 plagues. I'm telling you about the angel of death. I'm talking about Passover. I'm talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. I'm talking about the bitter waters turning to sweet waters. I'm talking about the 12 springs at Elam. I'm talking about the manna and the quail coming down every day. I'm talking about how the Lord gushed water out of the rock when I, when I, when I struck it. I'm talking about how the Amalekites were defeated. I'm talking about all these great things that the Lord had done. And what could have Jethro said to Moses in his face? Yeah, right you crazy Israelite. You're making all this up. I don't believe a word you have said. Jethro could have been cynical. He could have been suspicious. He could have been skeptical. But his heart softened when he hears about salvation. See, what God has been doing through the preaching of the gospel is God's been drawing Jethro to himself. God's been softening his heart. God's been doing this effectual call in Jethro. So when Jethro, the first words out of Jethro's mouth when he hears the gospel is, I'm expressing joy. You know one of the key fruits of salvation? That you, when you, when you begin to fully understand the gospel is joy. In other words, when you start to hear about all that Jesus has done, for you, on the cross, in your victory, to release you from bondage of sin, to take you out of spiritual deadness. When you really begin to understand the gospel, your first gut-level response through the power of the Holy Spirit is, that's too good to be true. If what you're saying is true, that's too good to be true. God can save me, and it brings joy to your heart. So Jethro's starting to get this joy welling up inside of him at hearing about the gospel. He's overwhelmed with excitement. But here's the second thing. In verse 10, Jethro celebrates the Lord's salvation with authentic worship. What's the first words out of Jethro's mouth in verse 10? Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. Now, he's pronouncing a blessing upon the Lord. He's worshiping the Lord. This pagan priest of Midian is blessing the Lord. Often in the Psalms, they would just break out with this, blessed be the Lord. And only the Israelites would say that. Psalm 72, 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be the Lord. Psalm 106, 48, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord. Yes, pray, bless the Lord. Now, why is this authentic worship coming from Jethro's lips? Because what does he say? Read your Bible carefully. Blessed be the L-O-R-D in all caps in your Bible, Yahweh. The covenant name of God. Not the generic, hey, bless your God. He's kind of cool. Bless the Lord, the I am, the covenant God of Israel. This is not some casual ascent where Moses is, I mean, Jethro's just kind of being polite to Moses. Yeah, your God's kind of cool. Get over it, Moses. Yeah, you know, bless the Lord. Bless you, Moses. No, this is a heartfelt, bless the Lord. 
because he's a God who saves. So there's joy, there's worship, but third, if you're not convinced that Jethro is a transformed dude, look at verse 11. In verse 11, Jethro forsakes his false gods and trusts in the one true God of Israel. Look at verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Who's saying this? The pagan Midianite priest that was steeped in paganism. And what's he saying here? I know Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. The Lord is greater than all gods. Now, Jethro probably thought that Yahweh was just a tribal deity. All these ites had their own God. The Moabites had their God. The Amalekites had their God. The Amunites had their God. The Israelites had their God. All these gods are basically the same. Some may be more powerful than others, but basically they're all basically a tribal deity. But what does Jethro say? This God of Israel is the one true only God. You see, when someone needs to become a Christian, they've got to understand very clearly that Jesus is the only way. That he's the one true God that's far superior than other, other so-called gods. Jesus said it himself in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jethro was probably had the same mentality that a lot of people have today. And the mentality a lot of people have today is, well, basically all paths lead to God. They're, all religions basically believe the same thing. There's maybe some minor differences, but really, at the end of the day, we're all kind of believing in the same God. And that's not what Jethro does here. He says, you know what? I'm the pagan priest of Midianite, and I have my pagan Midianite gods, but you know what? I've heard the gospel, and the Lord's done a work in my heart, and I've blessed the Lord of Israel, and he is far greater than my pagan mysticism. And he repents, and he forsakes that. The fourth thing we see and this is a little bit more difficult, so we're going to have to dive in here. In verse 12, Jethro confesses his sin and pleads for forgiveness. Now, you may say, I don't see him confessing sin. I don't see him asking for forgiveness. Where are you getting that, Pastor Sean? Look at verse 12 and ask yourself, what does Jethro do in verse 12? And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. He offers a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Now, you may simply gloss over this and think not much about it, but let's stop and consider this. He's the pagan priest of Midianite. Of Midian. He's the Midian, Midianite pagan, pagan priest. He's probably done many rituals. We don't know what those rituals were. He's probably done a bunch of weird sacrifices, pagan mysticism, all to a false god, all to an idol. But what's the significance of bringing a burnt offering to the Lord? This goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. You, do you realize that? This goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel learned it from their mom and dad, Adam and Eve, when God covered them with animal skins. 
you remember the two offerings that they bring, the brothers bring? Back in Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Cain brings a small portion of his fruit. Abel brings the choicest fat from his livestock. Genesis 4, 4 through 5, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Abel brought the right offering. An animal that needed to be sacrificed. Cain just brought a little portion of fruit. Genesis 22. Remember when Abraham takes Isaac up on Mount Moriah? Takes his son up on Mount Moriah, bounds him on the wood, puts him on top of the altar, about ready to plunge a knife into him. And then the angel of the Lord speaks and says, don't do it. And the Lord provided a ram in the thicket, and they sacrificed the ram instead of his son Isaac. You see, up to this point in biblical history, when somebody offered a burnt sacrifice to the Lord, basically what they're saying is, I need atonement. I need my sins forgiven. And this is the way that's determined to sacrifice or atone or forgive sins is through a genuine offering. So what Jethro's actually picturing here in primitive form is the cross of Jesus Christ. The need for Jesus to die as a sacrifice in our place to cover our sins and to give us forgiveness. It's genuine transformation here. What have we seen so far in Jethro's conversion? The Lord births joy in his heart. He blesses the Lord. He renounces his false gods and places faith in the one true God of Israel, and he offers a burnt offering. But let's look at the fifth thing, and you may just gloss over this again. Fifth, in verse 12, Jethro shares a meal in communion with other believers. But what happens after this? And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is a picture of a new believer being incorporated into the life of the church and eating the Lord's Supper. They're eating a meal. You've got a pagan Gentile who just got saved is eating a covenant meal with Israelites, and where are they eating this meal? Look at the very last phrase in your Bible there in verse 12. Before God. Literally in the presence of God. So let's ask a question. Where did Jethro offer the burnt offering to be sacrificed? Did he build one? Or was one already built that we saw last week? Did not Moses build an altar to the Lord and call out the Lord is my banner? This is just a personal opinion of mine, but I think that's where they sacrificed this, this animal. At the Lord is my banner. Before God alone. And they're eating this meal together. It's a wonderful picture of how God saves a Gentile pagan priest and incorporates him into the life of Israel, and then you have the two coming together to eat a covenant meal together. 
It's also a picture of how God saves a close family member. If you go back and read this, the word father-in-law is repeated eight times. After Jethro's name is Jethro, father-in-law, father-in-law, father-in-law. It's a reminder that Moses shared the gospel with a close family member, and that close family member Jethro got saved. He came under conviction of what God alone had done, and he rejoiced at the gospel. He blessed the Lord at the gospel. He renounced his false gods at the gospel. He embraced the true God of Israel at the announcement of the gospel. He sacrificed, showing his need for atonement when he heard the gospel, and then he was enfolded into the covenant community of Israel and ate a meal with the Israelites as one who was now saved. What happens when we eat the Lord's Supper? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17, The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. The many come together <clears throat> to take the one meal. Jethro, the pagan, uncircumcised Gentile whom God saved by grace, is now eating a covenant meal around the table with the circumcised Israelites where all ethnic and socioeconomic and religious barriers come crashing down because they're all equal at the foot of the cross because they've been saved by grace. That's what happens to us as the church when we come in on this place. We who are many, now look around, you're many. Different ethnicities different socio and economic strata, different genders, male, female, boy, girl. You all come in here with different backgrounds, all diversity. <clears throat> but when we come together as the church, we who are many, we partake of the one bread. We're unified in Christ. All those differences come crashing down when we come together at the Lord's table, the way that they came crashing down when Jethro ate the meal with Moses and Aaron and the elders. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want us to come to the Lord's table through the eyes of Jethro. How did Jethro respond to the gospel? So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, would you never ever get over the joy of your salvation? Don't ever get over the joy of your salvation. Would you always bless the Lord? with authentic worship. Would that always be what comes off your mouth? Bless the Lord. Would you never compromise on Jesus being the only way of salvation? Jesus is greater than all these other gods. And would you admit your need for forgiveness, for atonement, for the sacrifice, not of a, of a fatted ram or an animal, but of Jesus Christ himself? And would you celebrate our unity as the family of God that comes together as one? So as we take the covenant meal this morning, let's do it with joy. And let's do it in a manner that shouts, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul.
and all that's within me, bless his holy name. So let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together as one family. We who are many come together as one because God has saved us by grace. He's brought us into the family through the blood of Christ and we can eat the meal with joy. So would you just spend a few moments this morning getting your heart prepared to take the Lord's Supper together. Before your throne of grace, the Lord is my banner, the throne of grace. And Lord, we're thankful for your gift of salvation through Jesus. And Lord, there may be many in this room today that have a loved one that's very close to them that's not a Christian, that's not saved yet. And Lord, I pray for them to come to faith in Christ. Lord, would you use our sharing of the gospel, our opening of our mouths to tell others about all that Jesus has done. And Lord, we desire to see that person respond with joy, that person respond in worship, that person forsake their idols, forsake their sin, and they would see their need for atonement and embrace Jesus Christ as far greater, far superior, the one true living God, the only way of salvation. And as we come to the table right now to celebrate, we who are many come together and take the one cup and eat the one bread because we're participating together as the family of Christ. Let this be a time of joy as we take the Lord's Supper together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.